0: Section five of the third Miss Simmons by F. M. Mayer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twelve, and now a happier and more useful course of life began. Henrietta had just enough rheumatism to take a course of waters. Sometimes, she found a doctor who had a great flair for elderly ladies. He knew when to bully them, when to flatter them, and when to neglect them. He and the waters made a centre round which the rest of her interests might group themselves. Church. She found a vicar with nothing of Mr Wharton's enthusiasm and loftiness of aim, but with a greater realisation of people's capacities. He too had made a study of elderly ladies who are always such an important branch of congregations. He could see that what Miss Simmons was in his drawing room, touchy incompetent and snappish she would be in any work she did in the parish but he was also made to see her extreme generosity of which she herself was entirely unconscious he liked and was touched by her humility oh no don't trouble about asking me mr vaughan nobody will want to talk to a dull person like me Get some nice young men for the girls, if you can.' "'No, I can't have that pretty Miss Allen helping at my stall. I can get along very well by myself. I shall bring Annie. We can manage together.' The poor people, of course, did not like her, for as she grew older she was more convinced than ever that the lower orders must be constantly reproved. But poor people are very magnanimous, and they were sure of a good many presents. She was also for ever bickering with her servants but poor old lady as they said she's getting on now it makes her worry and she found in annie one who knew how to give at least as good as she got horror of being defrauded by servants and tradespeople was a great resource and though she continually deplored the pleasure of life abroad these years of muddling in and out of her house her garden and her shops were probably the happiest in her life a certain conversation contributed not a little to this new happiness she was at a tea-party for once she had been admitted into the circle of tea-parties she became much absorbed in them and she and a neighbour were tracing an attack of influenza from its source to its decline when henrietta's hostess came up to her i want to introduce you to mrs manson said she mrs manson is a cousin of that mr dockroll you told me you knew miss simmons there had been no sentiment in Henrietta's telling. She had quoted Mr. Dockerell as an authority on Portugal laurels. "'Ah, my cousin, Mr. Dockerell,' said Mrs. Manson. "'You knew him, did you? He's dead, poor man, had you heard? He died last year.' And once started upon Mr. Dockerell, she rambled away with his life's history, being one without much feeling—' who could say anything to anybody. Poor Fred! His marriage was such a mistake! She was older than him, and a mass of nerves. She caught him. I always say it was that. Anybody on earth could have caught him. It was at Worthing. These seaside places in the summer are very dangerous. My mother used to say, We must be thankful it isn't worse. No, he wasn't happy there was a story that he really liked someone else a miss simon her name was simon or something like that where did she come from oh yes Wilstead. he had some work there at one time the beautiful dark miss simon at least she wasn't beautiful that was our joke there was a pretty sister but she was fair My sister always insisted he was pining after her, but that wasn't like Fred. We used to be hard-hearted and declare it was indigestion." Mr. Dockrell's death was not very much to Henrietta. He had passed so entirely out of her life. But a dark Miss Simon, living in Wilstead—not beautiful—she thought much of that she could not but believe it must be herself so perhaps after all he did care she said to herself as she sat over the fire that evening she had reached the age when she liked a good deal of twilight thinking undisturbed by the gas but the news had come so late if only she had known before those months and years of unhappiness rose before her Granted that Providence had decreed they were not to marry, and looking back she did not feel as if she wished they had married, it was all so far behind her she thought that she might have been given the happiness of a farewell letter from him, telling her that she really was first in his heart. "'I should never have seen him or heard of him again. Of course, I should not have wanted it, but it would have been so comfortable to have known.' She fell into her childhood's habit of daydreams if one can have daydreams of the past and sat such a long time absorbed that Annie came in at last with her matchbox "don't you want the gas lit mum you never rang i was getting quite fidgety about you your heart's not very strong" Henrietta was composing his last letter each moment making it more and more tender she came back with a start to ordinary life and the magazine article on beauties of george the second's court which lay open before her she dismissed her picture of what might have been with of course it was impossible it's ridiculous wondering about it how can one be so foolish at nearly sixty but she did wonder and there is no doubt she was very much pleased and after all the good news was false. He had never thought of her again." She confided the little incident to Evelyn. Evelyn, adoring her husband, and adored by him, had been so much accustomed to men's admiration that she did not attach great value to it. She had seen long ago her old lovers pairing happily with somebody else, that side of life had been over for herself many years since. Her interest now was in her son's possible marriages, and it was a little painful to her that Henrietta should be so much excited about what had never after all been more than a potential love affair. To tell the truth, she thought it a trifle petty, and not worth the dignity of one on the verge of old age. She wanted to be sympathetic and she was too kind to say anything that would wound, but Henrietta could see that Evelyn did not enter into her feelings. Louis's children were now started in life, and the sons were getting on so well that even Henrietta owned they might be expected to take the burden of their parents upon themselves. She had her nieces and nephews to stay. Minna and Louis also came to take the waters. One or two of the nieces were, of course, collecting second-hand furniture, and used bath as a centre for expeditions to the little country towns. The visits were very pleasant if they did not last more than two nights. After two nights there would be a danger of friction, and sometimes friction itself. Her nieces and nephews were all what she called modern, the harshest word but one she knew a certain nephew and niece alas were more than modern they were the harshest word of all radical the nephew had too profound a contempt for old ladies to talk about anything more controversial than the local train service but even that he discovered was a topic beyond henrietta's capacity for it turned out after she had appeared to be talking very sensibly about the afternoon trains, that she was referring to one marked with an N, a Thursday excursion, which destroyed all the point of her remarks. Her nephew explained this to her, but she would stick to her train, and declare that the N was a misprint. A misprint in Bradshaw? What a mind! He had not realised that even an aunt could be so childish. Of course she knew she was wrong, but she tried to persuade herself that she was right, because she was so much disappointed. She had wanted to make a good impression on her nephew, even if he were a radical. She thought men superior to women, though throughout her life her affection and veneration had been given to women. Miranda miss arundel evelyn she had an innocent conviction that men knew more about everything except perhaps the youngest babies and she was anxious for masculine good opinion alas to contradict her nephew several times running was not the way to win him over He felt that contradiction amply justified him in wrapping himself up in his paper for the rest of the evening, vouchsafing, um, and ah, occasionally, after imploring pressure from his aunt. He left first thing next morning. Then his radical sister came. She inspected something under government and with a burning faith in womanhood, hoped against hope that with time her aunt might be converted to think the right things. With a mere niece Henrietta felt at liberty, and very competent, to correct. But she little knew with whom she was reckoning. "'Servants belong to a trade union. Annie and Emma—the cook—join a union. How perfectly ridiculous! "'But why ridiculous, Aunt Etta?' "'Because it is.' "'No, do not tell me, Aunt Etta. I know there must be some solid reason, and I should be so much interested to hear it.' "'You should have seen Annie's hat last Sunday. Enormous pink roses in it.' "'Yes,' answered her niece, catching her out, Aunt, very easily. "'But as far as that goes, some ladies have enormous pink roses.' "'Yes, indeed.' why when i was young we would never and you don't object to their joining trade unions yes i do but after all what is the teachers society that hilda belongs to hilda was another niece but a trade union and you went on their excursion hilda told me that has nothing to do with it a favorite refuge with old ladies when they're getting the worst of a discussion So, I mean, Annie's wearing garish hats is not really a reason against her joining a trade union. You see my point, don't you?" I particularly dislike being interrupted. I hadn't finished what I was going to say. I beg your pardon, Aunt Etta, I am so sorry. What was it you were going to say?" Henrietta could not remember, and branched off to something else wearing all this jewellery in the day is so common that girl at the post office had two brooches and a locket and she kept me waiting so long she always does "'Yes, but I think we must leave them to judge what they like to wear. It is not our business, really, is it? But I did just want to speak to you about this servants' union, Aunt Etta. I wonder if I might give Annie a little pamphlet I have written about it. Of course, we don't want them to be striking or anything of that sort. The aim of my society is simply to try and rouse servants to a sense of what it is they're missing— this great power of organisation and solidarity which they ought to have.' "'I think Annie looks like such a nice, intelligent girl who would be sure to have an influence with her friends. No, she's most tiresome and inconsiderate. She would go out this evening just when you were coming, because she wanted to take her mother to the hospital, so that I had to have Mrs. Spring. And it's all very well for Annie to say—' "'I wonder if I might read you a little piece out of my pamphlet, Aunt Etta, just to make a few points clear. You see, I want to get you in favour of our union so much, because we feel that mistresses ought to be cooperating with the servants, helping them to help themselves, and then we shall get a really influential body of public opinion which will do valuable work in improving servants' conditions.' Henrietta writhed and struggled, and went off on frivolous pretexts, but she could not escape the pamphlet, which was extremely able. So was the author extremely able, but for a complete ignorance of human nature. Henrietta heard all about Socialism, land taxes and adult suffrage too and the more cross she became the more kindly and patiently agatha shouted greeting any specially absurd ebullition with imperturbable pleasantness and how interesting i am so anxious to get exactly at your point of view that niece was not invited again Henrietta often thought with affection and gratitude of the little old aunt who had died many years back, but, as she would have been the first to own, her old age was not nearly so successful. Her house was not a centre for everybody. She had some elderly ladies with whom she exchanged visits, but young people disliked her, and children were afraid of her. Ever since she settled in England she had made earnest attempts to curb her temper, but the companion of a lifetime is not easily shaken off at fifty-five, and more often than not she was quite unaware of crossness, from which all around were suffering severely. On the very rare occasions that she did realise it, she went back to the self she had been as a child descended from the pedestal of her age and generation, and said she was sorry. One day she and Annie had a long, serious battle. The question in the first instance was whether Annie had chipped off the nose of the China pug dog on the mantelpiece, a relic of the old house at Wilstead. Henrietta always had a tender feeling for relics. The arguments marshalled by Annie were against Henrietta, but arguments never had much weight with her. Besides, the battle passed on, from the definite point of the nose, to vague but bitter attacks on character. Henrietta always had in her mind an ideal servant, who accepted scolding not merely with meekness, but with gratitude, and was fond of quoting her to the exasperation of the real servants. After half an hour Annie began to cry, noisily, so that Henrietta's words were drowned. The interview came to an end. Annie went downstairs and told Cook, but she wasted few tears or thoughts on the matter, and almost at once they were laughing cheerfully over their young men as they sat at needlework. Henrietta did think fidgeting about the room while she thought, taking things out of their places, and putting them where they ought not to be, in a fuss of discomfort. At last she rang the bell. "'The lamp, please, Annie.' "'The lamp, ma'am,' said Annie. "'But you don't want it for half an hour yet, do you, ma'am? "'It's such a beautiful evening.' It was impossible ever to quell Annie. "'The lamp, please.' repeated henrietta and i should like to i think you ought to i feel that in a what i want you to realize is that you should keep a great watch over your temper when one comes to my age one sees that there is and you should not put it off till too late as some people do as i have done Annie's sharp ears heard the last little murmur. Henrietta rather hoped they would not, though it was for the sake of the murmur that she had rung the bell. Annie said, "'Yes, am um, very pleasantly, and yielded about the lamp. She told Cook afterwards with some amusement. "'She's funny. I've always said that. But,' she added, "'I've known some I should say was funnier.' this opinion may be worth recording as it was one of the highest tributes to her character Henrietta ever received. On the whole, during those latter years she improved, and in the general reformation of her character she raised the standard of her reading. She confined herself in the mornings and afternoons to mildly scandalous memoirs of French women and biographies of church dignitaries, keeping her costume novels for the evening. She often saw Evelyn, and they talked of the past, but they never regained the almost heavenly intimacy of that night. They seldom met without some disagreeableness from Henrietta, and she did not like the boys. There was nothing of Evelyn in them, while they, for their part, could not imagine why their mother cared for their Aunt Henrietta. It was a continual struggle for Evelyn not to be impatient with her. Much as she longed to, she could not keep on the high plane of devotion which had brought such happiness to both. CHAPTER Thirteen. Henrietta died when she was sixty-three. Her father and stepmother were long dead, also her second brother whom none of the family had seen for years. When her relations were sent for, it was very cold weather in January, and Louis and Minna did not obey the summons. They deplored it continually afterwards, and explained to one another how appalling the wind had been, and what care they had to take for their children's sake, and how Henrietta had frightened them so much the year before, by sending for them when there was no need, that they naturally could not be expected to realise that this time it really was important. William came, looking more benevolent than ever with his very becoming white hair. Henrietta said that she thought it was the last time she should see him, but he assured her it was just the cold which had pulled her down a little, and she would be all right again as soon as the wind changed. It's wretched, knocks everybody up. He looked so hearty and mundane that it almost seemed, when he was in the room, as if there could not be such a thing as death. They talked about the drought last summer, and William's son, who was a planter in Ceylon, and the noise of the motor-buses in London, until William said he must go for his train. He was allowing a quarter of an hour too much time, for he was able to stay and talk a little while with the doctor who called when he was there. "'There isn't any chance,' you say.' no i'm afraid not miss simmons heart has been delicate for some years it gives her very little strength to stand against this attack "Mm, i was afraid so said william and he was glad to get out of the house and buy a pall mall the inspector niece came down uninvited "'very energetic and very kind in using the last few days of her holidays in nursing a disagreeable reactionary relation. She dominated the nurse, who was much meeker than nurses usually are, and quite quelled her poor aunt, too weak to protest, even at attacks on the monarchy. But Henrietta was much happier when the niece's holidays came to an end and she was left to die, quietly and dully, with the nurse.' Evelyn was away in Egypt with Herbert for her health, and by a most unfortunate accident she did not get the first telegram announcing Henrietta's dangerous illness. Poor Henrietta asked constantly if there was nothing from her, and as she got weaker and a little wandering, she kept on crying like a child. "'I want Evelyn!' They cabled again, and when the answer came, "'Starting home at once,' It was too late and henrietta was not sufficiently herself to understand it as soon as evelyn got home she went to bath the little house was still as it was but for some legacies which a careful nephew had already abstracted but the place of the dead seemed to have been filled even more quickly than usual annie as she said had only waited till the poor old lady was taken to marry comfortably with a saddler, and the parlour-maid was already established in a very smart town situation. There was an unknown caretaker to look after the house, which was to let. Evelyn saw the doctor and the clergyman, who both spoke kindly of Miss Simmons. "'We shall miss your sister very much,' said Mr. Vaughan. "'She was always doing kind things.' And he did miss her, to a certain extent, but there is a ceaseless supply of generous, touchy, incapable old ladies in England, and he could not be expected to miss her very much. Evelyn went to see the nurse, and could hear from her more of what she wanted. The nurse was a kind, sweet girl, the centre of an affectionate family, and engaged to a devoted young clerk. Oh, Mrs. Ferrars! If only you could have come back in time, she said, sobbing, or if you could have written, she did want you so every time there was a ring, it was is that from her, and I heard her say to herself, "I thought she would be sure to come. I simply had to go out in the passage. I couldn't keep back my tears, and of course, one must always be bright before a patient. It is so bad for them if one isn't some nephews and nieces came and one of them stayed several days and two brothers i think and there were several members of the family there for the funeral and she had lovely simple wreaths and the church was nice and full numbers of her poor people were there brought there as surely the kind nurse knew not from love of henrietta but from love of funerals but when your wire did come i cried for joy though we couldn't make her take it in poor dear still it seemed as if some one really cared for her oh she looked so lovely and peaceful at the end all the trouble gone this was a comforting deception which the nurse thought it justifiable to practise on relations for in fact death had not changed henrietta There had been no transfiguration to beauty and nobility. She looked what she had been in life—insignificant, feeble, and unhappy. "'Miss Simmons asked me to give you this box,' said the nurse. She made me promise I would give it to you over and over again.' Evelyn found it was an inlaid sandalwood box, which she had sent from India. As a present for the first baby. In it she found Herbert's letter announcing the death of little Madeline, hers and the other two babies' photographs, and a sheet of note paper tied with blue ribbon. On it was written: I can't tell you how much good you have done me. I seem to have been living for this for fifteen years. Evelyn, September twenty third, eighteen ninety. As she read it, Evelyn remembered what she had long forgotten, that this was what she had once said to Henrietta. When she walked to the hotel, it was a bright sunny afternoon and snow was on the ground. She went to her room to take off her things, but she stood instead at the window, too intent on what she had heard to be capable of anything. Her heart was almost bursting to think that Henrietta should have treasured all these years the little love she had given her—crumbs which she had, as it were, left over from her husband and boys—love not even for Henrietta's own sake, but for the sake of the dead children. She with all the riches of love poured on her, and Henrietta with so little. I was cold, selfish, self-absorbed. I didn't think of her. I forgot her. I criticised her. It was all my fault. But even at this moment of exultation Evelyn realised that it was not her fault, but Henrietta's own, that it was because she was so unlovable that she was so little loved but if she had had the chance she wouldn't have been unlovable she was capable of greater love than any of us and she never had the chance if there is any justice and mercy in the world how can they allow a poor weak human creature to have so few opportunities such hard temptations and when it yields to temptation to suffer so cruelly and now I am to go back and be happy with Herbert and the boys, and to feel quite truly that I did everything I could. I can't bear it. She was so much filled with her thoughts that she had not observed the flight of time. She looked up, and was suddenly aware that the night had come, and that the sky was shining with innumerable stars. At the same moment she felt inextricably mingled with the stars, a rush of the most exquisite sensation, emotion, replenishment she had ever known. She felt, through every fibre of her being, that it was all perfectly well with Henrietta, and that the bitterness, aimlessness, and emptiness of her life was made up to her this conviction was a thousand times more real to her than the room in which she was standing more real than the stars more real than herself tears of delight came raining down her cheeks and she found that she was saying over and over again darling i am so glad Poor, childish words, but no more inadequate than the noblest in the language to express her unspeakable comfort beyond all utterance, even beyond thought. How often she said these words, or how long this bliss lasted, she could not tell. A strange dreamlike remembrance of it stayed with her for some days. She told her husband, and he said, I am very glad of anything that can be of a comfort to you, dearest. But he looked at her anxiously and thought it was a sign that she was going to be ill again. However, she continued well and strong. She told no one else, but from henceforth she was perfectly happy about Henrietta. End of section five. End of the Third Miss Simmons by Flora MacDonald Mayer Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK